Well, let's return to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul continues to unfold for us the promise of glory, the glory that is assured to us in the gospel. We have seen that the work of the Spirit of life and the presence of the Spirit of life in our lives assures us of future glory. That's chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. We have seen that God the Father, through the Spirit, has adopted us as sons. And so the privileges of sonship also assure us of future glory. That's chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. So we begin this morning in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that, will, that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we come with all of the cares of our lives. We bear them with us here. And yet, Lord, we come into your presence and with hunger and with thirst for truth. And Lord, may it be in these minutes as we look at these words of Scripture your words, that these burdens would be laid aside, Lord, that they would be seen differently because of the truth that you reveal to us here. Open our hearts and our minds to understand, to grasp the depths of the promises that are here for us. In your name we ask these things, amen. 
Well, having made the point in verse 17 that we must suffer with Jesus Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him, Paul now focuses on what it means to wait in hope to be glorified as is promised to us. Because Paul's conclusion here in verse 18 is that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time remind us that we are living in an age, in an era, that is moving forward to a conclusion that will then give way to another age. And that age will be eternity. So this present time is the age between Jesus' ascension when he rose through the air and ascended into heaven to the right hand of God and Jesus' return, the return that he promises. It is the age between God's justification of his people and his glorification of his people. We live in a place of already, not yet. We live in a place where part of the promises, the kingdom has come, it has begun, but it has not been completed, it is not fulfilled. This is a really important truth to understand when you come to read your New Testament. Otherwise, you end up with little skewed understandings here and there. This is a reality that we live in this tension between what has already begun in terms of our salvation and what has yet to be fulfilled. This is why we can say of our lives, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Salvation is something that is past, it is declared, it is accomplished. We've seen that here in Romans. We are justified. We already stand before God as right with him. We are being saved. We are in the process of being transformed. We are in the process of being made holy, sanctification. And one day we will be saved completely, One day when God's wrath is finally and completely revealed, we will be saved or delivered out of that wrath because we have already been justified and through a process of being made holy. So we live then in this time, this age. And this present time is marked by what? Verse 18. Sufferings. Sufferings. So according to verse 17, we must suffer with Christ to be glorified with him. If we are now united with Christ, made one with him, then we must walk the path to glory that he walked. And that was a path of suffering. According to verse 18, the glory that will be revealed outweighs the sufferings. That is to say... That the glory that we wait for transcends even comparison with the sufferings that we endure now. If I filled a bathtub with water and I told you that I was going to take a measuring cup and measure the amount of water in that bathtub by dipping it out and pouring it out, 
you'd think, okay, that's, that's going to take you a little bit. That's maybe half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. And you would probably ask the question, why? Why are you doing that? And I would respond, oh, I'm just making a comparison. And if I then drove out to Ocean Shores, Washington, and I stood on the beach on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, whipped out my trusty measuring cup, and started to dip it into the water and pour it out on the sand over and over and over again, you'd probably think and say to one another and behind my back, I knew Sean would snap. I saw this coming. That guy's preached one too many sermons. He's always up bouncing around up there talking about sin and glory. He's a little high strung. Child of God, your sufferings in this life may be measured in the gallons like a bathtub, but the glory that is coming is like the Pacific Ocean. It cannot be compared. It, it transcends even our capacity to comprehend the vastness of the glory that is coming. There is no comparison. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul says something very similar. I think this was on his mind a lot. He writes, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, do your afflictions feel light and momentary? No. But compared to the glory that is to come, they are but a vapor. They come and go. And one day, in glory, you will look back at the tiny bathtub of sufferings, and they will be but a drop lost in eternity. So you see, how the believer views suffering is fundamentally different than how an unbeliever views suffering. For the world, suffering is unexplainable as humanity makes vain attempts to find meaning, which leads to either bitter despair or flimsy false hopes. And you can hear both the despair and the flimsy false hopes in every song that you hear on the radio, every movie and TV show that you watch. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch them or listen to them, but I'm saying what the world produces, the worldview that is there, it is always empty. It is always futile. For the Christian... We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice 
in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. So Paul is now elaborating on what he's already introduced in chapter 5. We have a transcendent view of suffering because the gospel that we have believed promises and assures us of glory. The word for this confidence, the word for this assurance is hope. This is hope. Now, how is this hope known? How do we experience this hope? day to day, hour to hour. I want you to see here in these verses four facets of the hope of glory. The first is hope's longing. Then we find hope's fortitude, hope's help, and hope's security. And we will not get through all of them today. First, we find hope's longing. Hope's longing, verse 19. We hope with longing, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul introduces creation as an interested party in God's children's destiny because creation's destiny is bound up with ours. And creation here is talking about all of the created order And it may seem strange, but creation is often personified. The created world is often spoken of as though it is a person. For example, Psalm 65, verses 12 and 13, the pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So here we have trees singing, we have the the fields exulting, we have the earth praising, rejoicing. Job 28 is another example. But where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living, the deep, the depths of the oceans. Say, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. So again, we have the oceans and the sea speaking. So for creation then to be waiting with eager longing, speaking of the created order, is in a state of brokenness. It's in a state of needing restoration. Humanity's fall into sin and the restoration of God's people 
has cosmic ramifications. All of creation has a stake in the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation waits with eager longing for this event. So saying that we must be revealed makes it sound like we're disguised, doesn't it? That we're hidden in some way. And so we are. We must be revealed because our identities as the sons of God is disguised. We are disguised by the sufferings. The sufferings. We are disguised by frailty and disease, by growing old, age. We are disguised by despair, poverty, persecution, and sometimes moral weakness. And the question is, and I think what Paul is trying to address is, is this what the justified sons of God should look like? Why should a child of God suffer the ravages of leukemia? If I have the spirit of life dwelling within me who gives life to my mortal body, then why do I still have to die? How can it be that one who is treasured by God the Father needs to endure the hatred and injustice and cruelty of God-haters? Are these not the questions that plague our hearts and minds at times? Why? If I'm saved, if I've repented of sin, what, why am I still why am I still struggling with temptation? Why am I still suffering? Why did my loved one die? I thought we were triumphant. I thought everything was different. It is. But we look and live and suffer and die just like everyone else in the human race. And sometimes we exhibit the same anxieties, the same sadness, anger, and selfishness. Because we are already, but not yet. We are justified. We are adopted. And we enjoy all the privileges of sonship. Yet who we truly are has yet to be seen because we will not be revealed until the Lord Jesus glorifies us. And when he changes us, our true identities will be broadcast. They will be revealed for all of the creation to see. And so creation waits with eager longing for this event when the true sons of God will be revealed. Why? Verses 20 and 21 give us a few reasons. Number one, because the creation was subjected to futility. The creation was subjected to futility. In other words, creation is not all it was supposed to be. It is held back from fulfilling its ultimate purpose. 
To say creation is subjected to futility is to say creation is not in sync. We experience this in what we call natural disasters. We observe this in the violence of nature, predator versus prey. This is a creation that is subject to futility. We witness it in places that are plagued by drought, famine. Creation is subjected to futility. And this subjection to futility took place all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God pronounced judgment on the serpent and the man and the woman and the ground. All of creation fell under this curse. And you'll remember that he said to Adam, you're going to work now, but it's, your work is just going to yield thorns, thistles. In other words, the earth is going to fight back. See, mankind was placed in the garden with a stewardship to care for creation. And creation was completely submissive. Creation cooperated. When man fell, creation itself was subjected to futility, and now it fights back. Now it resists. That's why work is toil and labor. But we also see that creation was subjected by God in hope, in hope, in confidence. It's almost like saying it was subjected with its destiny being this, to be set free from its bondage to corruption. So God subjected creation when man sinned and rebelled with the plan, the divine purpose of someday setting creation free from its bondage to corruption. And corruption here is decay. Creation is enslaved to decay and deterioration. But even at the point of subjection, there was hope. Creation was subjected in hope. And it wasn't subjected in hope as in, I'm subjecting it and maybe it'll all work out. Maybe someday creation will be set free. No, the hope Paul is talking about is specifically probably the promise that we find even in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God's judgment on the serpent, the deceiver, the one who has tempted Adam and Eve to sin. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first reference, the first promise of a savior. The first promise of a deliverer. The creation will trade then its bondage to corruption according to the promise of hope, the hope that was even given at the very point of subjection. And we'll trade this bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory 
of the children of God. Which means that our deliverance, our glorification will lead to creation's deliverance and transformation. Creation's ultimate transformation is when God recreates, when he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And we know this from the very end of the story, the part of the story that hasn't taken place yet. In Revelation chapter 21, when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, when he renews everything, that is the glory of the children of God. That is for eternity. This is why the whole creation then waits with eager longing and according to verse 22 then has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Just as we know that the agonies of pregnancy, of giving birth will produce the joy of a new life, so the oppression of sin and the curse will give way to deliverance and new creation. This is hope's longing. This is hope's longing. We live in a place in between, in a tension in which we, we have the deposit of the blessing. We have the assurance of glory, but we wait for its fulfillment, and we long for it. This means that hope, then, brings fortitude. Hope's fortitude. We find this in verses 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. Creation's groaning is a stage for our own groaning. These are not groans of doubt or despair or what if, I hope this works out. No, these are groans of longing because we believe God at his word. We take him at his word. And when he promises glory, we know it will come. Even if we can't comprehend all that it is, it's the Pacific Ocean. But we wait with this longing. We too wait eagerly, expectantly, with longing. Paul intensifies this waiting with the word inwardly. We wait inwardly. In other words, in the depths of our being, we long to be complete. We long to be made whole. We long to be beyond moral temptation and failure. We long to be free from weakness, whether that's physical weakness, emotional weakness, psychological weakness, moral weakness. We long for glory. We long for glory. And what we wait for specifically are our adoption as sons which is witnessed, which is revealed, which we experience as the redemption of our bodies. 
So our final adoption as sons means the complete transformation of our entire person. That's where the presence of sin is completely removed, completely eradicated. And again, we see this already, not yet, right, in these terms. Aren't we already adopted? Don't we already know the privileges of sonship? Paul's already laid that out in verses 14 through 17. We are already adopted. And yet, we are waiting for an adoption. We are waiting for the final adoption. There is an aspect of the adoption that is yet to take place. And that is the redemption of our bodies. But wait a second. Aren't we already redeemed? Yes, we are. We have already been redeemed. We have already been bought. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You already belong to Jesus. You've already been redeemed. And yet, we are waiting for redemption. We are waiting for a final redemption, the completion of our salvation. So both of these truths, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, that we are waiting for final adoption, that we are waiting for final redemption, are heavy with the unfolding of God's purposes and plans and saving us. We were saved in hope, verse 24. We were saved in hope. And this is the nature of hope. Hope operates with confidence in the unseen. Nobody hopes for what he already has. You can't be confidently expecting something you already have. Paul is just making the point, this is the way God has made it. This is the way you're supposed to feel and live with longing and expectation. Hope operates with confidence in the unseen. It is living between Jesus' resurrection and his return. It is living between our justification and our glorification that then builds patience. We wait for it with patience. The word patience is the word hupomanes. It means to bear up underneath. To bear up underneath. So when the New Testament uses the word patience, it's not talking about, I'm not in a rush. Look, don't be in a hurry. It's talking about the ability to go long. It's talking about the marathon. It's talking about what the old King James Version used the word long-suffering for. It means to bear up and to continue to bear up under the weight of something. It's the same word that Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, translates endurance. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Same word. So to bear up, to endure, to have fortitude. This is hope's fortitude. 
The assurance of the gospel's promise of glory gives us fortitude to live life with longing and endure until the end. And what I see Paul saying here is that the heavier the weight gets, it's counterintuitive. We think the more it presses down, the more we get worn out, the more we sink beneath the weight of enduring the sufferings and waiting and longing for glory, that the harder it gets to hold it up. And Paul says that the very process by which we endure, by which we long for glory, actually works the opposite. The heavier and the more it presses down, the more fortitude we gain. The more it presses down, the stronger we get. The heavier the sufferings, the greater the endurance becomes. It's because we have the Spirit within us, right? It is the Spirit who gives us this endurance, who holds us fast. So hope's longing, hope's fortitude. Listen, there is an end, you know. There is an end. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 through 31, Paul writes this. And he's been talking about the context of, of marriage and whether or not the, the Corinthians were, were questioning whether or not anyone should get married and a bunch of questions he's answering. So just understand, this is in response to that. But he, but he kind of steps back from that and he addresses a whole bunch of things. And he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And that would apply to wives as well. Live as though you don't have husbands. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What's he saying? He's saying everything's about to reverse. We stand on the brink because we live in this age in which Christ has come and died and risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of Father and promised that he will return. It is but the intake of a breath for God Almighty, even though it's thousands of years for us. And he's saying because of that, live the opposite of whatever your natural inclination is. Because God's about to change everything for the present form of this world is passing away. It's passing away. Perhaps you have at times wished you could stop time. You ever wish that? Well, I wish I could just freeze this moment. We've all thought that when we've for those of us who have kids and we've looked at our children, we go, man, this is, just a, this is just a great time. Maybe we want to hold a, a moment that has passed us by or maybe even turn the clock back to a younger, healthier you, me. I can remember not wanting Christ to return. Well, wanting Christ to return, but not until this had happened and I experienced this and this, right? We want to know what it's like to be married. We want to know what it's like to have kids and maybe grandkids. 
But if you've lived long enough and you've walked with Christ, then you have only a growing desire for glory. And if that longing is not there, it could be because you are constantly trying to numb it and dumb it down because you feed at the world's table too much. We become so enamored with the stuff of this life. You know that life will only be fulfilled, though, that it will only be made right when glory comes and you are revealed, and you are transformed. You know what? This is the longing of a true disciple. This is the longing of a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. I had a professor who used to say, we are to be a thoroughly eschatological people. Now, the word eschatological comes from Word of theology, eschatos, which is a Greek word for the end times or the last things. And what he was simply saying is that we are to be a people who dwell on eternity because of the present form of this world is passing away. We're to be consumed with the life to come and count everything a loss in this life ultimately. This longing is a sign of a a true Christ follower. And listen, the closer you walk with Jesus, the more this longing intensifies, the greater it becomes, and the greater your fortitude becomes. Let's pray. Lord, we've only scratched the surface of these truths, and yet they are like sunshine to our souls. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would take the hearts, the minds of your people and that you would direct them into the way of thinking your thoughts after you, of dwelling on your promises, on dwelling on the glory that is to come, and that everything that we suffer in this life would be seen as a few gallons in a bathtub compared with the glory of the Pacific Ocean, the glory in all of its vastness that is coming, that which is even beyond our comprehension. And Lord, may our souls and our hearts, though, be filled with faith, with confidence in your promises that then spills out in our worship of you in our gratitude and our praise today. Amen.